Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. G'day, welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I am Osher Ginsberg and this is episode 142 of the show with Dr. John Demartini. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. John Demartini. That's where he is. It's not a very difficult handle to remember for Twitter, but it's a pretty Twitter, but it's a uh, it's a pretty good one. Uh, I'll tell you more about him in a moment. A moment. Uh, thank you very much to everybody that has pledged uh, to keep this show on the air at Patreon.com/slash Osher O S H E R. Because of you, I'm able to make this show every week, and I'm able to afford um, people to help me produce this show every week because I just simply don't have time to do it by myself anymore. And I'm very, very grateful to all of you for doing such a thing. If you want to support the show patreon.com slash osher for as little as five bucks a month you can uh, get access to exclusive episodes that only supporters will hear uh i put them out about once a month or so and um yeah there's one coming very very soon very very soon um if you can't afford to pledge anything please don't pledge anything if you pledge something and went wow that's a lot of money you can adjust it you can turn it off i don't mind whatever you can afford to if you choose to i'd be very very grateful for it um this week audrey and i've been binge watching mr robot I know I'm super late to the party here, but Mr. Robot, holy shit, what a, what a show. It's one of the most incredibly well-written, incredibly well-acted shows I've seen in a very, very long time, and probably one of the best ever, I'm going to say it. And a, a really accurate and interesting depiction of mental illness on screen. And I, I've got to say, sometimes it was all a bit familiar. It was a bit uncomfortable. I had to pause it every now and again. And Audrey, you all right? So, yeah, I'm, I'm okay, honey. Just... See how we did that thing just then? She said, yes. I remember that car that time? She goes, oh, so yeah, that, that, oh, okay. Were you with, did you follow me on that one? I hope you did. 
Anyway. Hey, um, thanks everybody that sent us a picture over the week of where you listen to the show. I've got some brilliant, brilliant pictures of people uh, on clifftops by the ocean, people on the subway in New York, people in the bus on Los Angeles, people all over the world, people in Amsterdam sent me photos. Wherever you're listening to the show, just tag me in an Instagram photo or tag me on Twitter. I'd love to see where you listen to this show and um, what kind of uh, soundtrack I'm providing for whatever visuals you're experiencing. It'd be fantastic to see. Fantastic to see. Um, quick bit of uh, update on me. Um, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll know that I changed meds a couple of weeks ago. I'm now on just one medication. Uh, for more on that, there was an article in the Herald Sun, which is a Melbourne newspaper on the weekend. Uh, there's a lift out section there. I talk a bit about uh, being on meds in there, but I'm only on one now. And what it's managed to do is take away a, a big kind of scary, frightening, horrible thing that was happening a lot. But in its place has been something kind of strange that's popped up into my head. And it's a, it's a kind of a shitty way of thinking that's impeding my ability to just be calm. And uh, Audrey and I came up with a name for it. You know, it's weird that we gave it a human name because... Now, if I tell you about it, you might think that I have another person living inside me and I'm living with some sort of split kind of multiple personality thing. I promise you I'm not. Um, no, we just call her Judy. You know, were you being Judy just then? A bit, bit Judy, were you? Yeah, bit Judy. Yeah, so uh, that's uh, that's what's going on. It's good to name it, actually, though, because if you find I find myself, I don't can't tell when I'm in it. That's the trickiest part is I can't tell when I'm in it. And uh, I always say to Audrey, so if you notice it, please call it out. And it's very helpful when she does uh, because as soon as she does, I go, oh, okay, that's that thing. All right. Uh, take a few minutes and I deep, do some deep breaths and I recalibrate and I have another look at the way I was speaking or talking or doing and I go, ah, all right. And I clean up whatever I have to clean up and say sorry to whoever I have to say sorry to. And But it's really helping putting a name on it is what I'm saying. It's really helping it. And at the moment, her name is Judy. We might change it. <laughs> Hey, uh, let me tell you about my guest this week. Uh, my guest is Dr. John Demartini. You can follow him online, find out all about him at drdemartini.com. He is a, a bit of a legend, actually. He's a best-selling author, speaker, and teacher who's written, uh, he's published over 40 books, 40, travels the world, over 360 days a year. Crazy. Um, you'll hear how in this conversation, he went from homelessness to, you know, rising to a fairly enormous powerful position of influence in the world um but also how he came to begin to explore what makes people tick and how he dug deeper into human behavior patterns to understand what it is that we do and why we do it um, very interesting uh ways he has of uh, describing it in fairly interesting and, and very broad, acceptable terms to, to listen to. Um, you might have seen him if you've ever watched a film called The Secret. He's in that, uh, along with a bunch of other people. But it, it's that kind of vibe. But it's a great conversation. Uh, I'm really, really grateful he came over to my house. Um, from my uh, uh, kitchen window, you can see the ocean. And um, he uh, kind of looked out uh, over the sink and saw the, the lines of surf lining up to the horizon on that, that particular day. We had good surf. And he... He, uh, I didn't realize that he was quite, you know, as he tells in his story, lived in the ocean for many years surfing. And um, he could see his eyes kind of darting and watching, drawing out invisible lines on the waves as they were coming in over the sandbank in the south corner. And he was kind of ghost surfing them. It was kind of cool to watch. Uh, but I was really happy to have him over and I'm, I, I learned a lot from this conversation. He and I do differ on uh, one or two things, notably um, 
his uh, his uh, thoughts on the treatment of clinical depression. Um, not to say that what he teaches and what he's learned and what he's found hasn't worked for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Um, just the sort of thing that he describes isn't the sort of thing that works for me. But that's not to say, I mean, whatever works, man. If it works for you, fantastic. I'm stoked. Um, but it was great to, to have that conversation and, 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 you know, engage with someone who has a different opinion about how things work. Um, I'm really thrilled that he, he came by because it was so good to have him in the house. And he's one of these people that when you've got him, he's right there. He was right there. And then as soon as he left, he was, he was there for not even an hour, but he totally engaged and he locked on and we had a really great conversation. I, I certainly hope you enjoy what he has to say. If you want to follow him more on Twitter or find out more about him, you find him on Twitter at Dr. John Demartini. Uh, he's also online at, the, at drdemartini.com. But I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening. Hey, John. Very good. Hey, man. Thanks for coming around. Thank you. This is thanks. great. Great view. Isn't it great? Bondi. Yeah, Bondi Beach. Well, you've been in Sydney a few times, haven't you? Oh, many times. I've been out. I've walked the trail here. Yeah, well, there was this massive storm the other week. And just at the bottom of the street there, it actually washed the pathway away. Wow. Yeah, and, and it was actually, it was really confronting because there was this, uh, unfortunately, there's a, a student from Colorado who was out here and He's like, hooray, I'll go swimming. And he jumped in the water and he never came back. And so, yeah, so for the next week, we had two helicopters every morning looking for him. They found him six days later. And the, the swell was enormous. It was really sad. Hmm. It was real pretty. Anyway, bummer. <laughs> yeah, I've walked this uh, to Tamarund or whatever it is. Tamarama. Tamara. Tamarama. Long way from Texas. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was thinking you got the prime spot, Johnson. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, totally. I I'm, always... a surf, I'm a surf guy, so I love swells. I look, I look out and I see the lines. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's nice. The period's a little longer today. The period was a very five-second period yesterday, so it wasn't very... Uh... Yeah. Where do you surf in Texas? Well, I, I'm rarely in Texas, actually. No, you, you, you travel a lot, don't you? Yeah. Time. So I, uh, last time I was in Texas in January. Wow. And uh, they, they have surf there, but not unless there's hurricanes. Yeah. I've, surfed, I've surfed all over Hawaii, here in Australia, South America, Central America, everywhere. My, oh my. So you grew up in Texas? I was born in Houston, Texas. Yeah. And, uh, and I lived there for 12 years. Then my parents moved to Richmond, Texas. And then I left home at 13 and uh, became surf surf guy. Hang on a second here. Okay, so I lived in America for 10 years and I figured out there was something quite common about all my favorite Americans. They all happened to be Texan. I don't know what it is. I grew up in Queensland and there was something about it, you know, wide open spaces and kind of we'll, we'll do what we like, thanks very much. And yes, politeness and things like this. So it took me a little while to figure that out. And then I went to Texas and I was like, oh, of course, I get it. What happened at 13 that you're like, see you, mum, see you, dad? Well, I, uh, I had learning challenges and I... When we moved from Houston, Texas to Richmond, Texas, which is in the country, it was a low socioeconomic area. And I made it through elementary school with the help of the smartest kids. But by the time I got to that new school, there weren't a whole lot of smart kids. Mm. 
And so I relied on them to help me through classes. And I didn't have that, so I ended up failing. And I just dropped out. I said, I'm, I'm going uh, surfing. So I was a street kid and hitchhiked to California. About the time I turned 14, I hitchhiked to California and uh, lived in Huntington Beach, California for a while. And eventually uh, panhandled enough money to make it to Hawaii. Lived. When I landed in Hawaii, I, was, uh, I made it out to the North Shore and I slept under the Sunset Bridge, Kamehameha Highway. You may know the area. I do. <clears throat> and then I moved to Ikai Beach Park. I lived under a little park bench, which is still there. And then when it rained, I went into the bathrooms there. And then there was an abandoned car there that I lived in. And finally, I moved down into Haleiwa at the point um, and got me a tent kind of complex and a grass house tent complex and lived back in the little jungle there and was just surfing about 11 hours a day and uh, was a typical late 60s long-haired hippie surfer kid. So long, longer boards at this point? <clears throat> well, we had, I accumulated boards as I went along. I had them as small as six. Yeah, because you haven't got much. Like, okay, so food does cost money. And while, by, by all means, Hawaii is a bountiful place, <clears throat> you're not foraging. <laughs> well, actually, were you dumpster diving? What were you doing? No, what I did, um, I had a little bit of money from panhandling in California. And I put that in a little bank there. And I lived on an average about two to 250 a day. But we did find avocado trees and mangoes, and we found everything that we could utilize naturally. Yeah, right. And we had a lobster trap from the IGA supermarket there right in front of us, we made. And we had fresh fish. Uh, when the tide would go down, we grabbed fish in the rocks. And we had coconuts, and we, we lived partly off the land and partly off what who's, we could. Who's we, John? Well, there were just a bunch of guys that were in the, in the tents there. So I don't, <clears throat> I've thankfully never been homeless. I have had interactions with the homeless community. Not all of them are kids from Texas who had a hard time at school. Was there much mental illness in the community that you were living with? No, I think there were just a bunch of surf guys that just, oh, okay. I mean, we had surfers like uh, Mike Purpose was there in wow. the tent area. There's some hot surfers there, actually. They'd come there for the for the surf in the wintertime mainly. And... Um, some were probably not the brightest, but they were just dedicated surfers. Yeah. They wanted to surf every day. And um, I was one of them. So I, I just basically lived as simple as I could. And I just, I didn't care about anything but surfing. So I was surfing, like I say, 11 hours a day. Mainly at which breaks? Anywhere along the North Shore. Yeah. Uh, we would go from Velzyland all the way down to Holly Bay area. Yeah. So Lonnie Kea, I used to love surfing. And, and of course, Iikai Beach Park, that Pupake and pipeline and that whole area at Rocky Point was like I surfed Sunset when it got big and Waimea Bay when it got big. Now when you, here's the thing, Australians might go oh yeah, when it got big. We're talking like outside Sunset when it gets big is a mountain of water yes. and I'm guessing this is pre-leg ropes. Well, there was an inner inner reef and an outer reef Yeah, and it was very difficult to surf the outer reef that was before the jet ski era. Yeah. So we had to really be careful. We'd, we'd paddle out to the outer reef when it was big because the inner reef sometimes would close out. So we'd go out through the channels and go all the way out there and paddle out there and ride what we could out there. But uh, most of the time we'd drive, we'd ride sunset. Sunset would get about 35 foot face, 40 foot faces. They'd call it 16 to 20. Yeah, Hawaiian numbers. Hawaiian numbers. Yeah. And uh, we would just surf it. And sometimes sunset was a tricky peak because it would move around. 
Yeah. You'd have it, and it'd be one moment here and one moment over here. Yeah. It'd hit from different angles, and you could get caught inside very easily at sunset. Yeah. So we used to surf there, and, and uh, but there was always a channel, unless he got really, when he got over 20 foot, 40 foot faces or whatever, started closing out. Yeah. To, to the, the camis, they called it. And then, then there was no place to surf unless you had to go to just certain locations to get, get where there was waves, but a river mouth or something. These are big, big waves, dangerous waves. Yeah. And as you say, time before jet ski, you were on your own. Did you have any hold downs where you're like, well, this is it? Yeah. I have many close times when I have a lot of scars and a lot of uh, times when I thought I've, I thought this is it. And one time at Lining Care, when it was very big, we, uh, I thought that was it. I went over the falls like three times. It just kept me. But I um, just kept picking you up. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 horrifying. I, yeah, I, that's when I almost I almost died that day. But I had many close calls. I think every surfer does. Yeah. When you're out there surfing, and anything that's big enough to move you around, and you're 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 at the mercy of it, you can you can definitely have close calls. It's certainly something that uh, teaches you humility at a young age, isn't it? Well, it teaches you to be present. It teaches you uh, to be ready to be, uh, have stamina and strength, to make sure you do your preparation. We always said that there was a difference between the amateur and the professional. The amateur surfed uh, at their performance and the uh, professional surfed in between the performance. They were, prepared, they were preparing for things that occurred when it, when it got big. And I think that uh, you learn to do that slowly but surely. Yeah. But yeah, I loved, I, loved uh, I was a wave guy at the time. Yeah, right. And so at what point, <clears throat> You obviously didn't didn't stay there. At what point did you find a way out of? I mean, I'm not saying it's a trap to be homeless and surfing every day. It's something you wanted to do. At what point were you like, mm, there might be more than this? Well, I I surfed, and one day at Lani K, I um, I was accumulating strychnine poisoning, kind of a cyanide poisoning from eating some of the plants that were there, and um, it was cramping up my toes and fingers for a while. And I thought, everybody thought, well, John, you're surfing 11 hours a day, you're losing electrolytes and not realizing it. I thought it was electrolytes, but it was actually accumulation of some strychnine and cyanide. And uh, so when I was surfing Lani K that day, um, my right side of my body locked up on me and my diaphragm stopped. Not ideal. No. no <laughs> that was why I thought that was the end of it. Luckily, it, it released and um, I made it up to the beach and I hitchhiked into Haleiwa to the IJ supermarket, went in there and drank buttermilk, which I never drank, and I walked out and I passed out in the parking lot. And I found myself about three and a half days later in my tent. I still to this day don't know how I got there. And luckily a lady found me in my tent and saw that I was dehydrated and sick. And she's the one that helped me recover and took me to a little health food store to try at Vim and Vigor in Haleiwa and, and uh, encouraged me to to eat something and drink, so she got. And it was leaving that store one day, I saw a little flyer on the door named uh, special guest speaker Paul C. Bragg at the Sunset Recreation Hall in Waimea. And I went to attend a class. I never went to classes, but something intuitively said, go to this class to meet this. Bragg isn't the guy that makes my amino acids? Bragg's amino acids. Oh my goodness. So I went to um, this class and this woman yogi introduced Paul Bragg and Paul Bragg lectured for about an hour. In that one hour, he, churned, he changed the trajectory of my life. He basically said that we have a body, we have a mind, and we have a soul, and the body must be directed by the mind, and the mind must be directed by the soul in order to maximize who we are. 
And he said that we have something extraordinary to contribute to the world and to start beginning to set goals for ourselves, our family, our community, our city, our state, our nation, our world, and beyond for 120 years. Nobody talked to me like this. I was told I was going to never read or write or communicate or mount a thing, never go very far in life by my elementary teachings. And that night he lectured and I got inspired and I, for the first time in my life, I thought maybe I could overcome my learning problems and I could learn how to read and possibly go back to school. How old were you at this point? I was 17, about a week before my 18th birthday. A week before your 18th birthday? Yeah. How does it feel you're essentially homeless? Would you consider yourself illiterate? illiterate? At the time I was At the illiterate. time? Yeah, I hadn't read Did you books. feel like that you were kind of in, invisible, like the society didn't even recognize you? Well, this was during the time when the Vietnam War was going on, so it didn't hurt me to be invisible in the Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't have a post office box except the Haleiwa post office. To get your draft card mailed to you? Yeah, so yeah. I never got a draft card. Um, and when I finally later did, I, it, I wasn't drafted anyway, but I, um, but I really was just not interested in finding out yeah. at the time. I wasn't planning on being a draft dodger. I just didn't have an interest in going to the post office because I didn't have anybody writing me anyway. I'd go yeah. there. There'd be nobody writing me anything. Nobody knew where I was. Yeah. But, I, um, but that night with him, I, I, I saw a vision of me traveling to world teaching. And here, 44 years later, I, I'm uh, doing what I dreamed. So I, I started with a vision. There's a gentleman named Andrew Tischler who's in Melbourne, who's a famous artist, who painted. I, I did a presentation in Melbourne on that story. And I didn't know that this artist said I would like to paint that story, that vision. And he really did an amazing job at capturing the vision that I saw that night. And it sits in my office now. It's a big painting. And he painted this masterpiece of me standing out looking over from a balcony, looking out over this massive city. And he, he designed the city to include a building from every country and every city in the world in this painting. So it's got famous images of pictures of, of painting because he said, I, it's because you wanted to travel the world and you wanted to share. He thought I'd create this painting. And I, uh, so I've been using that vision ever since for 44 years. That's not everyone's got the vision of I'm going to travel around the world and, and teach people, but everyone's got an idea of I want to do something that's so big. I can't even, I'm not even going to start. So where did you start? Well, I, I, uh, I'm, I left Hawaii. Um, and I flew back to LA. I hitchhiked back to Texas. My parents, well, I, I came, I remember the day I came in from being in California and Hawaii. I remember opening the door, my mom was cooking in the kitchen and she looked at me and I had long hair and beard and she didn't hardly recognize me, but she figured it's gotta be their son. And she goes, oh my God, welcome home. And about a day or two later, three days maybe, she, she, um, she and my, my dad discussed that maybe you ought to take a GED, a high school equivalency test. So I said, well, what do I do? And so we well, just go take a test. If you pass it, you have a high school degree. If you don't, you got nothing to lose. I went, well, that sounds fair. Now, Paul Bragg that night and shortly after, because I studied with him for a few weeks, he gave me a little affirmation that I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom to help me overcome my learning problems. So I started saying that every single day. He told me to say it every single day and never miss a day for the rest of my life. And sooner or later, the cells in my body will tingle with it and so will the world. So I just started saying I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. So I went to take a GED, which is a high school equivalency test. And I'm saying I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. And I'm guessing because I couldn't read half the questions. And I passed. And I thought, maybe I am a genius. <clears throat> 
somebody, they taught me to take a college entrance exam since the surf was down. And I took that and I passed. And then I took a college class, which is summer school. It's a six week class, both English and history. And the teacher, Mr. Baker, uh, was, was quite intense in his presentations and I tried to keep up with him. And I thought I was getting the information, but when I took the first test, I got a 27. I needed a 72 to pass. So when I saw those results, I was pretty devastated. And I ran to my car and I cried. And I drove home crying because I thought, I guess I don't have what it takes. My first grade teacher said I would never read, I'd never write, never communicate. So all I could do is hear that first grade teacher. And I drove home and I curled up in a fetal position in the, in the living room underneath this Bible stand, <clears throat> which sits in my office today in Houston. And I, uh, I just sat there and had a low moment. And my mom came home from shopping and she saw me on the floor and she said, son, what happened? I said, mom, I guess I, I don't have what it takes. I guess I'll never read, I'll never write, I'll never communicate, never mount a thing, never go very far in life like I was told. And she didn't know what to say, she was just quiet. And finally she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, son, whether you become a great teacher and healer and philosopher like you dream and travel the world, whether you go back to Hawaii and ride giant waves, or whether you return to the streets and panhandle as a bum, um, I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do. And when she did that, I, uh, that's very touching to, to have a mom say that. And I remember my hand went into a fist and I looked up and I saw the vision of me standing on the balcony speaking. And I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called reading, this thing called learning and studying and teaching. And I'm going to do whatever it takes, travel whatever distance, pay whatever price to give my service of love across the world. I'm not going to let any human being on the face of the earth, not even myself, stop me. And um, I hugged my mom, I went to my room and I got a dictionary out. And I started at the very beginning of the dictionary and I started memorizing 30 words a day from A to AAA to AAAA. And I memorized 30 words and pronounced them and spelled them and put meaning to them. And between my mom and I, we practiced 30 words a day, new words every day, until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass school. And I eventually started to pass. And then I started to have more drive than any of the other kids because I, I wanted to overcome my, my challenges. And I just started to excel. And I started to have people come up to me and ask me to teach them. And so by the time I was 18 years old, I was, uh, before I was even 19, I was having students gather around. And uh, I started teaching them whatever I was learning. Well, speaking of teachers, what, if you could, what would you say to that first grade teacher that left that imprint upon you? Well, at the time, I'd, I thought it was true. It seemed true. I did have learning problems. I couldn't spell. I couldn't pronounce things. I had, to, I, was in, I had gone to a speech pathologist since I was probably one. And um, so that was just, I just assumed it was true. But what happened was, um, if I could see her right now, I'd thank her. Because if it wasn't for her and that void, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. I really, I always say that anything you can't say thank you for is baggage. Anything you can say thank you for is fuel. But so many people hear that and they would be able to blame everything that happened in their life on that person that told them they couldn't. And they'd live the rest of their life going, yeah, but Mrs. Smith told me I couldn't. Well... I don't see it that way. I, I see it as, as a, a gift because our voids determine our values. And I later, everything she said I wouldn't do, I've done. I mean, I went on to read over 30,000 books now and travel over 17 million miles. Um, I've become wealthy. I've uh, 
I've gotten to reach out to with media and radio and television, media and things, billions of people. So I've, I've been blessed to uh, to do all the things that she said I wouldn't do. So I think that that's a gift more so than a, that was a catalyst. I would say that uh, whatever people tell you you can't do may be the very thing you're destined to do. <laughs> I had uh, some challenges along the way, but I think that those challenges are what catalyze more refinements and more more uh, more achievements as you go. So you've got this vision of, of teaching, but it seems that the whole thing was very much developed around this idea of wanting to better, not just yourself, but better everyone as a community. Well, I had, uh, I, I think we all have both an altruist and a narcissist inside us, and we have to bring those into equilibrium between a service of others and a service of self. And I oscillate periodic, sometimes I get proud and narcissistic and I get humbled. And sometimes I get altruistic and get frustrated. So I, I have to find that and self-govern myself and master those two, two uh, polarities within me. But I, I think the most meaningful, most inspiring thing I get to see daily is watching people's lives change and finding out what they're inspired by and helping them structure their life in such a way where they go and live it. Seeing that is, uh, I, I have a gratitude book that I have which is probably the largest gratitude book of anybody ever met. Thousands of pages and, uh, and in there, the ratio initially was things I was grateful for. But now the ratio is getting higher to the students, the things that they've done that I'm grateful for. So I can see the ratio changing over time, uh, watching the, the long-term effects of, of trying to share with ideas. Because if you learn something that's inspiring that seems to help people, you, you can't help but want to share it. As someone who uh, has a book, uh, gratitude lists have become a part of my life. Uh, I got sober about six and a half years ago, so gratitude's a big, uh, big part of my day. In your opinion, why is making gratitude a part of your daily practice a helpful thing to do? Well, <clears throat> there's two types of gratitude. When things seem to support our values and go, oh, I'm, I'm getting what I want, there's a gratitude that's sort of superficial. And then there's a deeper gratitude when you start to see the hidden order in things that occur that even challenge you. And I always say that uh, gratitude, when you have the, you see the hidden order, you, you have a balanced orientation. And a perfectly balanced mind uh, awakens gratitude and opens the heart. And I think when it opens the heart, there's love inside. And it comes and window washes the mind and inspires the mind and brings enthusiasm to the body and allows us to go do extraordinary things. So I, I'm a believer that uh, the gratitude attitude is what takes us to the highest altitude in life. So I, I can't say I live 24 hours with gratitude. I certainly have my frustrations and my, my non-gratitude moments, but I, I'd make it a ritual every day to, to document what I get to do, including having this recorded today. This is already in the book. How do, how do, how do then do people say, like, oh, someone rear-ended me and I was an hour and a half late for work, they weren't insured, and now I'm up for $3,000 excess. How do you put gratitude around that, John? Well, I, I, I'm also a chiropractor, and I used to see a lot of um, people that got injured. And I, I know this will sound bizarre to some, but um, I encourage them to look deeper, that each of those so-called accidents have hidden orders to them. And uh, sometimes you need a kick in the butt, a hit from behind to get you moving forward on what you're hesitating on. Or sometimes you need a side swipe to get you onto a different direction in your life to get you where you want to go. And some of the things you think are terrible 
a day, a week, a month, a year, or five years later, they turn out to be great blessings. So why have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process? Why not look now and find out how that is happening and serving you? Uh, Viktor Frankl took uh, and found meaning in challenging situations, and I'm a firm believer that the mean, which is the balance between pairs of opposites, uh, is always there, sitting there waiting for an awakened mind. So if we sit there and ask, what's the benefit to what's happening, or how is whatever is happening to me serving me to my highest value and extract meaning from it, we can turn the scars into stars and take the challenges into opportunities and, and see how they serve us and use them to our greatest advantage. Otherwise, we're victims of history, not masters of destiny. But isn't that the key to it all? Isn't that the, what's happening, what do I make it mean? Isn't Well, exactly. I, I think that's one of the greatest questions. Our lives are based on the quality of the questions we ask. I think the greatest question you can ever ask is how specifically is whatever I'm experiencing, whether supportive or challenging, helping me fulfill what's most deeply meaningful to me? I, there's a lot that I could ask you after that question. So how do you even you, – you can bless and sneeze and do all you want. Don't worry. <clears throat> That's okay. People are just listening to a conversation in my house. I tend to leave a lot of this sort of stuff in. It's fine. Um, how – what was I going to ask you? Okay, so you had a very lucky moment in that – you went to the, uh, the lecture in Haleiwa and you were very, very clearly saw your purpose quite easily. What about people who listen to this and go, well, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't, I don't know. Where do they even start? Well, I've been blessed for the last 28 years uh, to share a program called The Breakthrough Experience with people. And inevitably, a percentage of the people each week that I do that, because I do it 40 plus times a year, um, they try to pretend that they don't know what, they're, what they'd like to dedicate their life to. But your life demonstrates it. Every decision you make is based on what you believe will give you the greatest advantage or disadvantage, greatest reward or risk at any moment in time to what's most meaningful to you. Because you're making decisions according to what you value. And your highest value, the thing that's to, is most important, is really the purpose. It was the, what the ancient Greeks called the telos, the end in mind. Napoleon Hill called it the chief aim. That's where you have a burning desire that you have a spontaneous intrinsic value to make yourself inspired to act. So I, I always look at what people do, not what they say. And because if I look at my life, I research, I write, I travel, and I teach every day. I teach every single day. So it's obvious what I'm dedicated to because it's what I spontaneously get up in the morning and do, don't ever need to be reminded to do. Well, everybody has something like that. But they, what they're doing is they're, they're comparing themselves to other people they're minimizing themselves to people they put on pedestals. They're injecting the values of others into their life, clouding the clarity of what they're inspired by, but what their life demonstrates, and then assuming they should be doing something other than what they're really doing, and then saying, I don't know what my mission is because they think I can't do what I think it should be because I'm not really inspired to do it. I keep going over in what I'm really by inspired by. People think they're sabotaging, but they're actually just going to what's important to them. And uh, so often, uh, I always say we're not here to live in the shadows of anyone. We're here to stand on the shoulders of giants. And we will do that as long as we don't minimize ourselves to other people, but realize what we see in them is, is there to awaken what we have inside ourselves that we're maybe too humble to admit. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of frightened people, though, in the world. You saw last week in Britain, a lot of people voted, let's get out of the European Union. And unfortunately, a lot of it was because, because we don't like immigrants. It's sad. There's a lot of fear going on in North America at the moment around immigrants what, what if what if people in like what if they go oh no my purpose is to make sure that my neighborhood is white what if my purpose is to make sure no immigrants ever do a job that my kid can do 
Like, how, where, where do you draw the line as to, you know, what purpose is serving all of us? Like, as far as, and here's the thing, all these people think they're doing the right thing. All these people think they're doing the best thing they can for their family. So where do you stand around that? Well, I'm glad you asked that. <clears throat> Inside our physiology in our body, we have what's called oxidation and reduction. Breakdown and buildup. We have catabolism and anabolism. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We have apoptosis, which is cell death, and mitosis, which is cell birth. We beat ourselves down and we build ourselves up. There's a pair of opposites inside us. And uh, in order for us to remodel ourselves and keep plastically adapting to a changing environment, we have to be able to build and destroy. And just as our physiology does that and our psychology does that, in order for us to have resiliency and fitness and adaptability to whatever's happening in our, in the perturbations that we experience in our life, society has that. And society has a law called the law of heuristic escalation, which means that whatever somebody's dedicated, somebody's dedicated to the opposite. And there's a pair of opposites. There's pro-lifers or pro-aborters. There's pro-this, there's anti-that. Those are not mistakes. Those are actually necessary components to remodel society to, to adapt to a changing environment. And the Earth itself is literally moving through astronomy and having to adapt to a changing environment. So society is made out of countercultures, complementary opposite countercultures that make it do that in order to adapt. And if one goes too fast, the other one slows it down to make sure it's going at just the right pace. So I don't see that uh, one is right and the other's wrong. I see both are necessary. I'd rather come from a perspective of neither positive or negative instead of either positive or negative. It allows you to adapt more. So if somebody has a different set of values and they react, immediately like a blog, a counterbalancing system will come in to homeostate it and bring it back into balance. So I'm not overly concerned about those highly reactive because they just counterbalance each other and bring it back into the center. I'd rather just have self-governance and stay centered and see the value of both sides and keep focusing. As Will Durant said in his story of civilization, uh, the dialectic that Zeno, the philosopher, coined uh, was designed to oscillate back and forth, and each time we synthesized these pairs of opposites, we grew. So I see the world doing actually what it's designed to do, complementary opposites, fighting with each other, et cetera, to teach each of them to humble themselves and to own a little bit of the other side, little yin and yang and yang and yin in order to grow and to keep evolving and, and adapting. History's kind of shown us that most of the time, I mean, we eventually figured out slavery, not a great idea. We eventually figured out system of justice, 
better than, you know, well, in most parts of the world, better than corporal punishment. You know, eventually we kind of laid on the side of a little more kind of peace and niceness to each other. Well, I, I tend to think that just like in the body, you, you need support and you need challenge. If we had support, we'd stay juvenile independent, entitled and disabled. If we have challenge, we become precociously independent and we grow. We need both in life. So I'm not a favor of one or the other. I see that the necessity for both. I've never seen anybody that hasn't had both. And um, so sometimes people, we, as the Buddha says, the desire for that which is unavailable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. I'd rather embrace both sides. And if you try to get rid of half of your life or half of you, how are you going to love you? You've got to love you for both sides and you have to love the world for both sides. When did you start being so interested in how humans worked and how humans interacted with each other? Was it out in the surf going, oh, okay, well, you know, he's a local Hawaiian, I'm a Hawaii, I'm going to have to let him go first? Was it that kind of thing? You know, I think, I think it's just a culmination of a lot of things. I, I, when I was living on the streets, I remember when I was living in Huntington Beach. I was 14, it was 1968. And I lived behind the uh, Golden Bear, which is a place where a club and behind it, there were little pallets, wood pallets. And I would sleep out there because there's a vent that kept it warm because it got a little cool at night. And uh, Buddy Miles and B.B. King and some of the great musicians would, would play there. And they'd come out in the back and smoke a cigarette or something like that and bring some pretzels and stuff and nuts. And I'd go back there and I'd meet with these guys. And some of them were quite philosophical. I met a lot of interesting people from Ted Nugent to you know, a lot of famous uh, bands. <laughs> And they were very quite philosophical. They were older, and I think hanging out with older people uh, as a street kid uh, made me curious about human behavior. Then when I nearly died and I, and I started studying, I wanted to master my life. Since I was 18, I wanted to know what is the mastery of life and how do you maximize human potential and awareness. And so I've been on a search for that and study of that all these years. Because we're, we're kind of told that it's cool once you get the nice Ikea thing and then the big telly, and you get your take your kids to Bali every year, sweet, job done, end of the line, well done, you've achieved. But eventually when you get all those things, you kind of feel, well, is this it? Well, Henry James said, uh, nothing of the senses will ever satisfy the soul. And the only thing that satisfies the soul is the moments of gratitude and love for your life. And if you had only 24 hours to live, you'd say, thank you, I love you to the people who've contributed to your life. So finding meaning is more significant than even power or just pleasure. So I think that... Uh, when we achieve all the things we do and we get our bucket list, we realize it's time for another bucket list. I, can I share a story on that? I, Mate, you do whatever you want. I, I'd like to share a story that just popped in my head as you, as you asked that. I was teaching the Breakthrough Experience about 27 and a half years ago. So you only just started it, like early? It's early times. Yeah. I've done it 1,075 times now. And uh, I was doing it, and there was a gentleman named Tom Gillis attending. And he was one of the Silver Fox advisors, friends with George Bush Sr. in Houston. And it's in a prestigious group of gentlemen that basically help mentor other corporations. And he was attending this, and it was very honorable to have him in the, in the program. And uh, he had heard me speak to the Silver Fox Advisors. That's where he came, decided to come to the Breakthrough Experience. And uh, he said on Sunday, it's a two-day program, Saturday and Sunday, and on Sunday he asked if he could have a moment with the group and speak. I said, Absolutely. He said, Dr. DiMartini, I just want to thank you for inspiring me this weekend and for helping me initiate a new set of goals and help me clarify my mission now. Now, he was around 69, 70 at the time. He said, um, 
And the reason being is because I must confess something. 40 years ago, almost to the day, I attended a program by Napoleon Hill. And Napoleon Hill had me to write down my chief aim, my mission. This is the uh, how to win friends and influence people. Well, no, no this, this, this is the, the laws of success and the congruence. <clears throat> That's right. He said, I, I attended this class, and, and Napoleon Hill asked me to write down my chief aim, which is my mission. And I wrote it down. And I got serious about it. He told me to write down my goals, and I wrote down about a dozen goals. And he, wrote me to, he told me to write down them and turn them into statements you could say to yourself as reminders. Check up from the neck up. So I, uh, I did so, he said. And let me share with you what, what I did. I wrote down that I wanted to be a wealthy multimillionaire by the time I was 40. I wanted to have a, turn a mom and pop operation into a major corporation with thousands of employees. I wanted to live in uh, River Oaks in a mansion, which I did. He says, I wanted to have a, a Mercedes Benz. I wanted to marry the most beautiful woman in Texas. He says, and I wanted to write a book, how to change little operations into big corporations. And I wanted to give to my alma mater and be charitable to my school. And he made this list of a dozen things. He said, Dr. Martini, I achieved every one of those goals except one. And the reason I did not achieve the last goal is because I was afraid that if I achieved my goals, I would die because a lot of my buddies, when they finished all their goals, they died. Right. They ended their life. They didn't have anything to live for. He said, but when I heard you speak at the Silver Fox Advisors, I decided at that moment that here's my next Napoleon Hill. I can now set my next 40 years worth of goals. So I wasn't afraid of going and finishing the last goal. And so he reached in a satchel and he brought out his book. He says, I finished my book now because I knew I was coming to your program to write my next 40 years. So here's a copy of my book, How to Turn Mom and Pop Operations into Major Corporations. And he handed me the book. Very inspiring book about how to lead big companies. But he'd never given it to anyone because he thought... He, he, the first time he ever it showed anybody. He was afraid to finish it because he's afraid if he finished all his goals, he'd die. So here he was, only 69, 70 years old. He turned it in, and then he said, I'm so inspired because I got the Mercedes-Benz, multiple. I married Miss Texas. I became a multimillionaire before 40. I have a mansion in River Oaks, one of the biggest. I've given millions of dollars to my alma mater. I've done all the things I've done. I've now finished my book. But why I'm speaking up is because I'm so inspired because I just wrote my 40 years more goals. And I'm inspired because I have a mission that I want to fulfill right now. And he made everybody in that room in tears. Tears of inspiration. Now he died three years ago. This is 27 years ago. So he made another 24 years towards his 40 year goals. So he almost was 90 something. And uh, all I can say is that that was an inspiration to me and how important it is to have something to live your life for something that's meaningful, something you can't wait to get up in the morning, something that's highest in priority. Because if you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, it tends to fill up with entropy and distractions that don't. So it's so important to find challenges that mean something to you that you can tackle so you can get more out of your life than to just sit and coast. Because you decay if you don't uh, grow. This is the, the second time we've been chatting for under 40 minutes. This is the second time that you've been close to tears. Uh. In your work, 
you open yourself up to a lot of people who are coming to you because they're at the end of the rope. You've got a lot of people who are at a crisis point. And yet even in this conversation in a safe house with a dog, you're, you are emotionally vulnerable enough to... How do you... Do you find it difficult to defend yourself against the emotional energy coming your way from people who are having... I mean, it must be all day. I, I could never do that. I don't think much about it, actually. I, I, uh, I just try to share what I learn and uh, try to research it every day and try to share. And I mean, <clears throat> I always say that if you're addicted to praise, criticisms are, are painful. But if you just allow yourself to be yourself, you don't really have any effect from either one. Yeah. I, take no credit, take no blame, just keep focused on Chief Hain. The name of the game is thank you, I love you. <laughs> you've... Um You've, you've spoken about, uh, you know, dealing with, dealing with depression, dealing with anxiety. I'm someone that deals with both. Also, I, I, uh, I have OCD. And uh, so I was very interested to talk to you today because you, you've explored ways to deal with these things um, outside of the kind of pharmaceutical world. Now, I've tried to deal with these things outside the pharmaceutical world. Didn't end well. <laughs> this is what I tell you. And I unfortunately, I had to come to the grips that I am one of the people that I, if, if I don't help my brain out, um, like basically lubing up the switches, I can't switch those switches back off to the world is ending, the sky is falling, you know, the lions are eating me. Um, but what, what kind of, what, what things have you found that could possibly, possibly help people um, who are perhaps dealing with, you know, depression or anxiety or finding their life just dark all the time? Well, I, I, uh, I have the, the opportunity to work with people that are clinically depressed quite often. And um, uh, I say that depression is a comparison of your current reality to uh, unrealistic expectations or fantasies that you are striving for. Mm -hmm. There's 15 most common ones that I've identified in people. And... Um, I've yet to see a person that's clinically depressed that's not following those, those one or more of those 15. For instance, every human being has a set of priorities, a set of values that they live by. And anytime they set goals that are not aligned to the highest values, they're decreasing the probability of achievement. So if they have aspirations and, and expectations for them to do something that's not really meaningful to them, and they keep procrastinating, hesitating, frustrating, they're going to beat themselves up thinking there's somehow there's something wrong with them. There's actually nothing wrong with them. They just are setting goals that aren't really theirs, but they don't know that. That's why it's so important not to subordinate to other people because many people, I'm sure everybody's had an experience where they've been infatuated with somebody and tried to live in the person that they're infatuated with values and eventually frustrated themselves and got resentful and said, I want my life back. But many people don't even realize that they're infatuated with people that they admire. If they see somebody that they think is more successful or more wealthy or more intelligent or has a better relationship or is more successful uh, or have a better social influence or physically more attractive or more spiritually aware, anytime they minimize themselves and are too humble to admit what they see in others inside themselves, they'll tend to inject the values of others and try to live vicariously through them. As Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. And we try to be somebody we're not. And the magnificence of who we are is far greater than anybody we try to be that, that's not us. And so when we do that, we inject those values and we confuse and, and cloud our own mission and we set goals that aren't really ours and then beat ourselves up when we don't achieve them. And uh, we, we, we hold ourselves back and then we 
having these expectations of doing something that's not us. How on earth then can something like Instagram be so popular? You're describing everything that is at the same time great and horrible about Instagram and Facebook. Well, it all depends. It's not the, the, those are vehicles, but still the human being is doing those things. I'll give you an example. I, I stood up in front of large audiences, sometimes thousands, and, uh, and asked how many of you want to be financially independent? And every hand goes up. Of course, everybody wants to be that way, they think. And then I say, well, what percentage of the population obtain it? And I hear anywhere from one to 5%, and it's actually less than 1%. And I said, isn't it interesting that 100% of the hands are up, but less than 1% have achieved it? So 99% of you are living in a delusion, and you're having an expectation of doing something that's not happening. And I said, how many of you ever have anger and aggression toward yourself? You blame, you feel betraying yourself. You criticize, you challenge yourself. You feel despaired and depressed. You want to exit and escape your situation. Are frustrated and grouchy about your life relative to finance. And most hands go up. I said, because you're expecting to become financially independent without the values that it takes to do it. If you have a higher value on buying consumables and depreciables that go down in value and having immediate gratification and not have a higher value on buying assets that appreciate value that actually are investments, then you'll work your life as a slave for money and never become a master and have it work for you. And so you have an expectation of actually living the lifestyles of the rich and famous, but you don't actually have the values that it takes to be patient to invest. And so you beat yourself up and have these ABCDEs of negativity at yourself as a feedback mechanism to let you know that you're setting goals that aren't yours. If you set a goal that matches who you really are, you'll find fulfillment and you'll find achievement. But if you set a goal that's not, and it's a fantasy that you want to live vicariously to other people, you'll frustrate yourself and be depressed. And your depression is not a, is not a terrible thing. It's actually a feedback gift to let you know you're setting goals that aren't yours. Because the moment you just set goals that are yours, you change your life and the way you fulfilled yourself. Either you set goals that match your values or change your values to match your goals if you want fulfillment. But anytime there's incongruency, the depression mechanism is a natural physiological response and psychological response to let you know that you're not being congruent. I'm, I'm somebody who has uh, been, how shall I put this, quite aware of my own thinking and the traps of my own thinking and deconstructing my own thinking for at least 17 years now. And... I'm someone who has most definitely looked at my expectations, most definitely looked at my what, what am I wanting out of this moment and yet still found myself with those, the switch between happy and sad just almost super glued into sad. No matter how many times I write it all out or map it all out or do whatever CBT method or whatever other method that I've been taught. What about when you're in that situation where you, where you still find yourself, wow, I am exhibiting symptoms of depression even though I am completely happy with, you know, I believe I'm being incredibly reasonable. I've never seen it to be true. Really? I've, I find, uh, I've worked with many cases. I find that what happens is what they think they want and what they actually are wanting are not the same. Many people, like they say, have the fantasy that they want to have financial independence, but they don't have the values. So I first go in and look at how their, what their values are and what their life demonstrate. Because what your life demonstrate is what your values are. But what you think you want don't match. 
And this is where the, the challenge becomes. What about on, on like, like, a, like a much more global level? What on like, like in a, in a community-wide level? I, I like, I'm, I feel completely powerless over, um, uh, say, for example, if you lived in the, in the UK right now, I feel completely powerless. I voted to stay in the EU, but my whole country has decided that I don't. I am, you know, and then that what you thought was your power disappears. Like, what about someone like that? Well, I would say any area of your life that you don't empower, people will overpower. And if you really, truly have power, um, those things don't affect you. The world on the outside doesn't affect somebody who's empowered from within. Um, I'll give you an example. The stock market, when it goes up or goes down, there's benefits. A person that doesn't know how to manage money will think it's good when it goes up and bad when it goes down because they don't know how to manage money. If they really had a value of money, they would know how to manage money and make it where no matter what it does, they win. And the same thing in life. Um, if you're in a situation that you have mastered your life and empowered the areas of life, those type of things don't affect you. Uh, if all of a sudden the, the British currency goes down or the British does this, if you're empowered, you say, okay, I'll now transform myself and live in another country. I have no issue with that. I live globally, so what country does what doesn't really make much difference because I, I travel the world full time. So I, I don't let that affect me because I empowered some areas of my life. But if you feel trapped in a situation, it's actually a catalyst for you to, to realize that you're trapped and dependent on something. And anything you're dependent on is running you. So you have to empower. Uh, I always say that if you're, if you're not empowered intellectually, you'll be probably living under other people's uh, intentions and, and, and teachings. If you're not empowered in vocation, you'll probably be told what to do. If you're not empowered financially, you'll be subject to Social Security and uh, the rules of that particular place you live. If you're not empowered in relationship, you'll probably be frustrated in your relationship and unfulfilled. If you're not empowered socially, propaganda will run your life. If you're, if you're not empowered physically, then you'll probably be looking for something on the outside to save you. If you're not empowered spiritually, you'll probably live by some uh, religious dogma or some sort of institutionalism. So the question is, is, are you gonna live in the shadows of people or are you gonna stand on the shoulders of giants? If you stand on the shoulders of giants, um, you take the obstacles and you use it to your advantage and, and use that to grow even further. Is there, is there a simple way? Because people might think that I'm in, it's very hard to see that you're not empowered sometimes when you are in that situation. What are some ways you can help yourself figure that out? Well, <clears throat> if you're not inspired by your life in each of those areas, you're not empowered. Okay. Uh, if, you, if you can't say thank you every day for what you have in all those areas, somehow there's something not empowered. So I always, I always look at this as, as uh, are you, if you're financially independent, that means you have enough wealth to pretty well decide where you want to go and what you want to do. And you would, if, if something happened, uh, when 9-11 occurred, um, my wife and I, uh, we had a place in New York City at the time in Trump Tower. We um, decided to move to one of our other homes. So it, it wasn't an issue. We just moved to another home. We had enough availability to, and flexibility to do that. So your resilience and adaptability is based on your perceptions. As William James said, it's never what happens to you. It's your perception of it, what you decide to do with it, and how you act upon it. You're never really a victim of the outer world unless you choose to be. It's how you determine it, what you do with it, and how you, how you adapt to it and make something out of it. That's, just, that's such a massive thing for a lot of people to deal with, though. So such an enormous concept that, oh, you know, I'm here because the economy is this, or because my boss is that, or because my dad said this, or because my first grade teacher told me I couldn't do that. It's it, it's almost it's almost easier to 
What a blame. Yeah. Well, I've never seen blame empower people. Yeah. <laughs> I've, seen, uh, I've seen quality questions. Uh, I've seen many people that have run their stories about how things didn't work in their life. Uh, but I, I had a, a young boy who, who said, you know, I didn't have a father. And I smiled, and he said, why are you smiling? And I said, I said I'd like to bring you to my computer. And I pulled out a list of 700 celebrities and people in, in history that didn't have a father. I said, you're in one of these categories. That means you're blessed. You're one of the few that didn't have the father. <laughs> and and, and, and Sir Isaac Newton didn't have a father. Um, and his mother kind of left him for a while, too. Um, Tycho Brahe, um, even Bill Clinton, Wayne Dyer. I mean, there's... There's a list of people that didn't have that. So every time people come up with an excuse, I usually go to the internet and find out all the people that had that and mm. how they did extraordinary things with that. There's a woman I work with who every time she's sick, we work, I work on radio in the mornings, every time she's sick, she looks up uh, people who won a gold medal at an Olympics while they had the flu. <laughs> and then she gets out of bed and she goes to work. Well, and it happened. Yeah, I, I always say it's, it's not, it's, the greatest discovery of our generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their perceptions and attitudes of mind. And that, you have control over your perceptions, your decisions, and your actions. But was that our generation's of Stoics? We're talking about that then, thousands of years ago. Well, the Stoics um, had one polarity. They had the understanding of that. There, we have the Nidian and the Cone School back into the ancient Greeks. Uh, one was geared towards it's all the outside world that determines your destiny, you know. And the other is the inside perception. Mm. And we have genetics and epigenetics. We have control over the epigenetics. We may not have control over the genetics, although the epigenetics now can cause alterations in genetics. So I don't know what the limitations of our capacities are, but I do know that I've seen people with just about every imaginable crisis in their life turn into blessing. So how do you, even though you speak with the people thousands at a time, okay, how do you scale what you're doing even bigger? Well, I'm blessed to do um, a lot of media. And um, this morning I, I filmed a, another movie. I'm getting to do this pre presentation. I think we have the Huffington Post right after this, and then we have Forbes magazine after that. And then we have a consult. So I do a lot of media. I do about 1,000 interviews a year. I, have, um, I do a lot of speaking, um, about 300 a year, 300 speeches a year. And uh, write books. and. And if you add it all up, we reach millions of people. Yeah. Billions of people, actually. So, um, you know, if you set a goal to do something, that doesn't stop you. You can reach as many people as you set your mind to. Yeah. I'd like to share a story again. Yeah. I had a, I was speaking in Cape Town, South Africa, about six years ago. Six and a half. Uh, at the Arabala Hotel, Sheraton Arabella. About 800 people. And uh, way in the back... Apparently, there was a young boy there who was 14 years old. I didn't get to meet him at that particular time. But um, that was a September. And uh, I came back in December and did another program, about 800 people. But this time, the young boy who was there in September came up to me at the end. And there was a bunch of people coming up and signing book, you know, signed books and hugs and pictures and stuff. And this boy patiently waited towards close to the end. And he comes up to me and he says, uh, Dr. Demartini, you inspired me. And I said, fabulous. And he said, um, no, you really inspired me. You changed my life in September. I said, what happened? He said, you inspired me to believe in new possibilities. And I said, well, well tell me about it. 
He says, well, you see, my mother and father, they died of AIDS. And I'm 14. And I have nine brothers and sisters, and I'm the oldest. So I have now become the parents of these nine brothers and sisters. I live in a shack in Kailicha. We don't have electricity or water. We don't even have a roof that, that doesn't leak. So I have to cover it in plastic. We have to walk about, a, about 200 feet to get water. And um, when it's dark, it's dark. And we don't even have a cement floor, it's just a mud floor. So if it rains, we really have some challenge. Well, after hearing you speak, you said that it's never what happens to you, it's what you decide to do with it. And I decided that I didn't want to stay in that position. I wanted to do more for my family. So I had a job. I stacked bricks at a mud brick place. I walked 45 minutes to go there and I walked 45 minutes back. I get paid 60 cents a day to stack bricks. And um, I decided in September that I was gonna save 15 cents a day. So I was gonna save literally 25% of my income. So I did. And uh, 15 cents goes towards savings. 15 cents goes towards paying a woman to take care of my kids during the day and to sort of teach them what she knows, which isn't a lot. He said, but I have a dream that I wanna buy a house that's a $200 house that has a light bulb and has a floor and uh, it's a really it's an inspiration to me, he said. He says, I've saved $7.50 so far. And I'm translating it from RANDs into US. He says, and I'm on track for next Christmas. I should have at least $30 saved. And I'm going to put $20 down and have an extra 10 left over. And I'm going to buy that house. Now, they have to charge 25 at least, percent to get a loan for these houses. So they're going to be paying enormous amounts of money over time for a $200 house. He said, but I'm going to pay that off. And I'm going to have a house for my, my, my brothers and sisters. And so you inspired me. Now, I could have given him 200 bucks right there and bought him a house. But if I did, I'd robbed him of his inspiration, his dream, his drive, his accountability, his dignity, his responsibility, and productivity. He was an inspiration. He said, I have a dream to inspire another thousand kids that live in this, this township to do the same because a lot of them are in the same boat because there's two million people live in that area, in a very small area. He said, so you inspired me. And I said, no, you've inspired me. So I went visit his little house when he got that house. And it was very touching to see how hard this little boy worked to save his money. But he also did this. He also kept asking himself, what else can I do at work? What else can I do to earn more money? What else can I do to serve people? And he worked his way up to earn more income. So it just goes to show you, it doesn't matter what you've been through or what you've gone through or what you're going through at the present. What matters is what are you going to do with it? and how you perceive it, what decision you make with it, and what action you take on it. So that little boy inspired me. He said I inspired him. But he confirmed the principle on how if you want to use blame and become a victim of your history, then fine. But you're not going to get the most out of life and you're going to end up missing out on the magnificence of life. And you're going to disempower yourself. So I always say the path of empowerment is, is learning how to ask new sets of questions and find out how whatever's happening is serving you and use it to your greatest advantage to serve others back. If you do, there's no limit on what your capacity is because there's no limit on what numbers of people you can serve. My dad, when I was nine years old, when I went to him and asked for some money, he told me, he said, son, he says, if you clean the garage, yes. If you mow the yard, yes. If you clean the sidewalk, yes. If you clean the gutters, yes. 
Have you uh, shined my shoes? Yes. Have you trimmed the hedges? Yes. Have you pulled the weeds? Yes. He said, son, I have nothing else that needs to be done, so if you want to make money, you're going to have to go to the neighbors. So I went to the neighbors, and I en enrolled other neighbors into allowing me to do things in their yard to, to, to make some money. And I made some money, and I bought me a baseball and a glove and a bat. My dad said, I, I see you have this new equipment. Where did you get it? And I said, I earned it. He said, what did you do? And I said, I went to the yards of the neighbors, and I, I helped you know, repair the yards and mow the yards and rake the, the leaves. He said, what equipment did you use? I said, well, the equipment in the garage. He said, son, I have to charge you for that equipment. <laughs> so he, he said, I, you, I owed him $7.50. And I said, oh, so I had to do another two yards just to pay him back, because by then it was $9. So I ended up paying him back, and um, I had to work harder. And then I got, because of that challenge, I got three little boys in the neighborhood to help me, and then another three, and another three. And I got other neighbors' uh, equipment. And I built me a little company when I was nine. <laughs> and we started doing it, and I paid everybody off, and gas, and my dad, and everybody, the neighbors. And I netted about $45 a day, which would be worth a lot today, about yes. $700 today. Yeah. So if you had a nine-year-old that was making $700 a day, you'd be pretty inspired. Well, I bought me a golf club and a, a bicycle, and I started to do things. My dad saw that I was spending my money immediately without any savings. So, that is his wisdom, he bought me a coin collection set and a piggy bank. Well, I started collecting the coins to think longer term, and I had a piggy bank. In my office in Houston, Texas, on the 52nd floor of a tall building, in my little credenza to the right, is that original piggy bank. I never was given the key nor combination to open it. It has the original coins from 1963, and all the coins that I collected before, and all the way back to the beginning of 1900. So he taught me long-term, and I've kept that as a metaphor to think long-term and to save, not to just spend my money on immediate gratification, because immediate gratification costs you your life and long-term vision pays. Well, my dad then said, he said, son, you've learned something about uh, working. You've learned how to make money. You learned how to save money, but there's one more thing I want to teach you. And I thought, oh my God, every time he teaches me something, it's costing me. He says, now I want you to know what it's like to be free. He says, I'm gonna start charging you for clothing, food, and rent. So I had to pay so much per week to live at home. He said, but you just bought your freedom so you can go on your new bicycle anywhere you want, any direction you want, as long as you're home by nine o'clock. So I got on my bicycle and I used to ride 35 miles in different directions and explore everything in the city. I went every direction. That taught me how to travel. By the time I was 12, I was hopping uh, trains and hitchhiking to different cities. By the time I was 13, I was going to different cities. And 14, I hitchhiked through Mexico and to California and messy places. He taught me how to be an entrepreneur because I was learning disabled. So I was very grateful for my dad to have uh, the wisdom to see that I, I better be street smart if I'm not going to be academic smart. All right, that was what a hell of a story. We should probably wrap up because you've got to go. Um, but I can't thank you enough for coming around. Next time you come, uh, I've got two longboards downstairs. <laughs> Try and eke out some time on your schedule and we'll go for a paddle out the front. <laughs> I see Bondi is a great space out there. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty good. Thank you so much for coming, mate. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'll uh, just quickly take your photo. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thanks, 
And that was Dr. John Demartini. You can find out more about him at drdemartini.com. He travels to Australia quite a bit, travels all around the world. So there's a high chance he's going to come by to uh, your neck of the woods, wherever you are in the world. Um, find out him. Find out more about him on Twitter if you want to let him know you heard it or you got anything out of this conversation. Let him know. Uh, Dr. John Demartini uh, is his handle on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Um, thanks again for supporting on Patreon. If you feel that you can spare the cost of a fancy coffee once a month, that will certainly help this show. And the quality of this show will increase ever more. Um, until next time I see you, I look forward to the photographs of wherever you're listening to this show. Just tag me on Twitter or Instagram. I hope you watch Mr. Robot because it's freaking amazing. And, um, yeah, thank you for being here. Oh, I wouldn't be able to do this without you. You're the best. Sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.